Lord, we ask for your strength, um, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, Lord, the, um, the, the insight that we need to understand, Lord, what it is you want to teach us today and how you want to grow us. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Mark and how it has been drawing our attention to really examine who you are. And as we come to our passage today, may we continue down that path and may we not just assume that we know the answer to the question, but Lord, may we always be in an attitude of, of learning and growth so that we can have a, a fuller and deeper and more accurate perspective and awareness of who you truly are as revealed in your word. And Lord, I ask as your messenger that you would simply uh, use my mouth and my voice to proclaim your truth and that your will will be accomplished through our time together around the word. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, life, is, life is full of lessons. Sometimes those lessons are hard. Sometimes those lessons um, are, are times of great um, humility. I, I think maybe a, a number of us in this room um, at one point in time when we were children stole something from someone or from some store and we were caught either by the people who are the owners in the store or our parents. And if you had parents that um, decided to, to, to do things well and right and you stole something from a store, what would that parent do? Well, first of all, they would confront you and correct you and they would say, we're going down to the store and you're going to take what you stole with you and you're going to go and return it and you're going to ask for forgiveness for what you did and you're going to confess it and you're going to say, what do I need to do to make this right? And if you've ever been a child who has gone through that before, yes, you stole something, but even more importantly, um, you, were, you were forced by your parents to deal with the situation in a right and proper way. That is a good lesson to learn. And a lot of times parenting involves lessons, difficult lessons like that. But there are other lessons, things like riding a bike. You know, you might fall off your bike, but you got to get up and you got to get going again. Um, gassing up the car. There are people in this world who still do not know how to put gas in their car because they've never learned. All right? Uh, it's, uh, you won't find them at the gas station. Okay, that's the thing. Oh, they might be in the passenger seat. Um, or something that's a little bit more close to home, and that is making your bed, right? Um, I, I have the hardest time making a neat bed. Um, I make the bed, and my wife always comes in and corrects it, right? Because it's not done just right. But I try. I try. And I don't have a military background. I just went to Bob Jones University, which is pretty close to military, but, but we weren't forced to kind of make our beds um, in the right way when I was there. I remember when I was, uh, I think it would have been like early middle school over here, but this is when I was growing up in England. Um, I was in English class, or at least it was the class, and we had moved into the English um, time during the day, and we were taking a quiz, and it was a spelling quiz, and, and I did the quiz, and what we did is we turned it into the teacher, and the teacher would review it, and she would mark it up and give it back to us, and I took the quiz, and I got, I got a word spelled wrong, and our practice um, was that we would have to then write that word 10 times so that we would get the right spelling um, into our minds, into our brain, and uh, that was one way of kind of reinforcing things. And so I, I did that, and I turned it into the teacher, and she got angry. She was so um, exasperated with me because I had... 10 times spelled the word wrong differently again. And I mean, she was so angry. She was complaining to the class and she was, you know, just so frustrated. And it was very, very humiliating as a, as a young person at that point in time. And um, it just, you know, of course, taught me the lesson. Make sure that you do things right before you turn them in. So ever since then, you know, if I had a paper to turn in or something, I'm making sure that I've got all these, you know, I's dotted and T's crossed because I want to make sure it's right. It was a good lesson for me to learn. 
Now, as we come to our text this morning, uh, we, 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 we are familiar with some of the content in this text. It's the transfiguration passage. But we need to understand the transfiguration in the context of what's going on in this gospel and in the context of what Jesus is doing with his disciples. And I think it's important for us to recognize what happens here in verse 1 because it, it clarifies for us a little bit about what is going on. There's certainly some intent that Jesus is making here. And look at verse 1 with me, if you would. It says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, this, this verse is actually a, a bookend to the last paragraph. If you remember last time we were in Mark's gospel, we were, we were looking at what I identified as fuzzy faith. Remember, there was that illustration of the blind man, and it took two efforts, in a sense, to heal him. It wasn't that Jesus couldn't do it the first time. He was making a point. He was showing that you can actually see a little bit but not have understanding. And that it was evidenced by Peter because Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? And he says, you know, Elijah, you know, one of the prophets. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, you know, open mouth, insert foot. He says, you are the Christ. And the problem was he got the answer right. But what we found out is that when Jesus gave this passion statement in uh, chapter 8, um, what we find is that Peter doesn't like it. He doesn't like the fact that the Messiah is going to have to go to Jerusalem and he's going to have to suffer, he's going to have to die, and that he's going to rise again. He doesn't like that. That doesn't compute in his mind at all. And so he rebukes Jesus. And what we emphasized there was that you can have a right answer but not know what it means. See, the disciples still didn't know who Jesus truly was, although he had been revealed to them, and they certainly did not know why he was coming. In their minds, they already had a predetermined understanding as to why a Messiah would come, and that would be to overthrow Rome and to establish the kingdom. And so when we come to this passage, and we come to this verse, it's the end of that bookend where it began with this this lack of sight, so to speak, this fuzzy sight of the blind man, but now it ends with this. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, what is the kingdom of God that comes with power? That's, a, that's really the question that this, this verse is, is asking or begging an answer for. And honestly, there's some differing opinion on, uh, on that subject from like-minded brothers. Um, but let me share with you at least what I see is unfolding in Mark's gospel and how I see this, this, this really to be interpreted. Let's note, first of all, that, that the kingdom has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. He has come preaching the gospel of what? The kingdom. Right? So he, he, he is healed with power. He has calmed storms with power. He has cast out demons with power. He's raised people from the dead with power. So the kingdom has come, and Jesus has demonstrated uh, his power many times, but all those things have already taken place. What he's talking about here is something that is yet to happen, Right? So there's still something future that Jesus is talking about. And there's really three, um, three ideas out there that would, would fit the bill here. First one would be this. It would be the resurrection, where God's power is demonstrated by raising Jesus from the tomb. This is the power over death. This is the, this is the pinnacle, you might want to say, of the gospel, right? This is why we celebrate Easter. The kingdom has come the power of God is on display by and through the resurrection. The second interpretation and understanding is, the, is Pentecost, when, when the power of God, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, working through people, coming on people, spreading out from the center of Jerusalem, then to the nations. Um, a demonstration of God's power, the, 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 the outflowing of his kingdom. 
And then the third one would be the actual second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes to rule and reign on the earth is the point when the kingdom is finally established and his power again is demonstrated on display. And so these are the three interpretations. And Jesus gives this promise, these realities, unknown to the disciples, are still in the future. And this would fit a common practice of prophecies that have both an earlier and latter fulfillment. Now what's, what's interesting is all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they tell the story of the, tribu- of the transfiguration, they always begin with this verse. In other words, it's always there connected to the transfiguration. And what that tells us is that what Jesus is saying has direct impact on the transfiguration, but it may have its ultimate fulfillment in the future. There's this early and this latter kind of understanding. This is not uncommon when it comes to prophecy. And so what Jesus is doing now is is in order to kind of push and give them a picture of the kingdom and the power of Christ, he gives these three disciples, these some a glimpse of what will ultimately be fulfilled in the future. Jesus in his glorified state is what they see. Now, as best I can tell, the, the, the promise finds its primary fulfillment in the resurrection. But the kingdom and his power continues on through Pentecost, through the establishment of the church as it spreads out, and then ultimately when the Lord returns in glory. So I think there's aspects of these interpretations that have ongoing demonstration, but I think the resurrection, really, as a church, as believers, it is the resurrection that we point to. That is why we celebrate it as such a powerful demonstration and evidence of the fact that Jesus is God. So in this transfiguration passage, the disciples are gifted the privilege to come face to face with Jesus in a new way, in his glory. And that's Mark's goal for us, too. And so for for this morning, as we come to this passage, I put the proposition this way. As we are given a glimpse of Jesus in his glorified state, we are called to pay attention by looking, listening, listening. And learning. The disciples are going to be taken now on a, on, a, on a day trip, on an excursion with Christ. Can you imagine that? I mean, as, as teachers, as, as someone who is a trainer, oftentimes, you know, when someone has a question, we say, hey, let's, let's, go on a, let's go on a journey here. I want to show you something. And that's what Jesus is doing now with some of the disciples. He wants them to see a glimpse of what is, what is reality, but what is also yet to come. He wants to solidify in them the reality that he is the Son of God, but also encourage them by that. And so as they are are, are walking through this, we're going to find them looking at Jesus, listening to Jesus, and learning from Jesus. And friends, that is a paradigm for us all. We must look at Jesus. That's what we have done. Chris has done a great job this morning of, of just setting things up, although we didn't talk about this about looking at who Jesus is and and why he has come. And as we've prepared ourselves here, and as we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper without looking at Jesus. We shouldn't, let's put it that way. And without listening to Jesus. And without learning from Jesus. And friends, the narrative of Mark here um, is, is really carrying this theme out of seeing, hearing, and understanding, and it has to be repeated for us. Do do we have eyes to see? Do we have ears to hear? And do we have hearts that are willing to understand what is being said? We need all three. So let's begin with what I'm calling a call to look, a call to look. Now this transfiguration takes place at a strategic point in the flow of Mark's gospel. Peter has rightly confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. We've seen that. We've talked about that. Jesus then lays out his first passion prediction. You want to go back to Mark chapter 8? Let's read it in verse 31. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. As I mentioned, Peter can't fathom that. The the concept of a suffering Messiah just doesn't register with him. And so he rebukes Jesus, but then Jesus rebukes Peter and tells him, you know, get behind me, Satan. Now, six days later, Jesus takes some of his disciples on this field trip to teach them a valuable lesson. Now, let's look at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And I just want to say on the front end here that what we have here in this transfiguration is an allusion back to Moses in the book of Exodus, in particular, chapter 24. And we're not going to make all the connections here, but there's a few things to think about here. Moses goes up the mountain with three named people. Secondly, he's on that mountain for six days journeying around as he's interacting um, with God. There's a voice that, that, that speaks from a cloud with Moses. And then we also find that the Shekinah glory is a reflection that is on Moses as he comes down from that encounter with God. And so there's, there's these connections, there's these illusions that, that what is happening here with Jesus is, is connected to um, this Old Testament experience, as well as the fact that one of the witnesses there, one of the people that Jesus is interacting with, is Moses himself. And, of course, we're talking here about the greater Moses, right? And that is Jesus Christ. This high mountain is most likely Mount Hermon. Traditionally, it's at another place, but this makes far more sense because Caesarea Philippi is in the north, and it would make sense that from Caesarea Philippi, when you look out, I've been there, you see Mount Hermon right there. It just makes sense that this would be the the, the location where this took place. And it's a time to give both affirmation to the disciples about the identity of Jesus, as well as to confirm the work that he has to do on the cross. We're we're transitioning here from chapters 1 through 8 to chapters 9 now through the end. We've seen who Jesus is. Now we're moving into what Jesus has come to do. We're still going to see about things about who Jesus is, but now this idea of, of passion and what Jesus has come to do begins to take further shape as he gets closer to Jerusalem. And so we have here three revelations uh, for these three disciples to see. And they're, they're both, or say all three of them, are very, very significant. First of all, what we have here is, is these disciples who are able to look at Jesus in his majesty and in his glory. It says, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, friends, if you have seen Jesus just in his humanity, uh, Scripture has some things to say about him, but it wasn't that he was, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't Mr. Stud, right? He, he, but he was, he was a normal man. But there was something that happened here, something unique, something different that took place here, and it's called here his transfiguration. He's transfigured before them. This is a word that is rather, rather unique. It's rather, um, it's not used many times in scripture, um, but the places that it is used, it is used to talk about radical change. In fact, um, it is used, it's the word metamorphonon, um, or metamorphon, which means to change. And it's that word that we find uh, uh, you know, from metamorphosis, right? Um, the, the change that takes place. Um, in particular, in 2 Corinthians 3.8, Paul uses it this way, talking about us and what happens to us. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, like Jesus is transformed here in this context, so you are being transformed. There is a change taking place in your life, in your being, by virtue of your encounters with God. That's what Paul is talking about here. 
And so the same word now, the same idea is being used to describe Jesus. Now, this isn't a change in his nature, but a change in his appearance. He's still the same Jesus. That There's something that, that, is, that is veiled, so to speak, by the virtue of the fact that he has humbled himself and taken upon himself the, the form of a servant and been made in the, in the likeness of man. So, so the, these, uh, these disciples now see Jesus in a completely new and unique way. And we have evidence of that because of the clothes. And what does it say there about the clothes? It says um, they became radiant, intensely white. I mean, if, if that expression wasn't enough, right? He goes on and says, as no one on earth could bleach them. I mean, this is, this is the whitest white that Sherwin-Williams can, can come up with, right? I mean, you know, what kind of white would you like? Well, you want, you know, white or you want, like, bright white or you want, like, Shekinah glory white? I don't know that there's ever been a Shekinah glory white. In the, actually, it's not a bad idea. I should, I should, you know, copyright that or something, right? But, but that, that's, this, is, this is as pure, as pure, and as bright, and as glowing as it can be. And it's just reinforcing the fact that here is Jesus in his majesty and his glory. And friends, it is evidence for these disciples that this one in their presence is no human being. And that's it. He is truly the Son of God. There's something divine about him. Now also look at Jesus in his relationship to the Old Testament. This is what's happening as they're up there on this mountain with Jesus. He's transfigured, his clothes are glowing white, but notice what happens in verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now first of all, it's one thing to see Elijah and Moses, but it's a completely thing, different thing to, to talk with Elijah and Moses. Now, let's just kind of put some of this stuff together. What is, what is going on here? What we have here is Elijah and Moses representing the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament, the, the, the scriptures that point to the Messiah. They were both deliverers of God's people, but they also both represented this prophetic tradition that points to the Messiah. And in fact, if you turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, or you can look up at the screen, um, the, 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 there is, there is a, there's a reason why they're brought together, because Malachi here brings them together in a future prediction um, and, uh, and says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the, of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike a, the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there was a sense in which now, based on this passage, that they believe that when the Messiah comes, that these things would take place. This would be the great and awesome day of of the Lord. So when Moses and Elijah being together, it, it would be natural for someone who was a practicing Jew who had a good grasp of Old Testament to say, ah, this is a prediction about the Messiah. Hey, these guys are connected here together in Malachi chapter 4. Now, with their appearing, the law and the prophets are signaled as being fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah who has brought the kingdom. Near, So this is further emphasized when they're seen in discussion with Jesus. Now see, this puts Jesus with two critically significant Old Testament prophets. Let me just try and paint the picture for you. You know, if, I, if, if Ron said, hey, you know what? You know, I, I am the Messiah. Um, let me just tell you something. He's not, okay? Um, but just to say he is, he, he, he claims that. And he, he says, listen, let me prove it to you. And what he does is he takes you and, and he takes you some kind of a, a vision and he shows you him talking freely with Moses and Elijah. What does that communicate? It communicates, well, how come he knows that? Okay? How, how come he would feel comfortable actually interacting with them? If I met Moses and Elijah, I, 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 I wouldn't know what to say. I would feel 
I would feel so like nothing. And, and what Jesus is pointing at here, what he's doing is he's, he's placing himself in the context with these Old Testament prophets. And he's interacting with them in such a way that this is natural. So the disciples have seen both Jesus in his glorified state as well as his, his relation to the Old Testament prophets. Now, how would you respond if you were able to be in the presence of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah at the same time? Shock, awe, fear, wonder, panic, dread. But if you're Peter, if you're Peter, you just open your mouth. Right? Now, we, we, we give Peter a lot of trouble. And I think part of that is because we see a lot of ourselves in Peter, right? We, we just blurt things out. And understand, Peter's not blurting something out of a vacuum. There's actually, there's actually some, some reason why he's saying what he's saying here. But, but the, we're even told in the text, look what it says. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it, it is good that we are here. Let us, you know, no kidding, it's good that you're here, right? I mean, you know, this is better than going to Disneyland, right? I mean, you're up in the mountain, there's Jesus and Elijah and Moses, right? It is a good thing. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, there's a side here you might be thinking, you know, Peter's thinking, you know, if we make three tents, we can, we can hang out here for a while. This, this can actually be a long experience. I mean, that's one possibility. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. But notice what it says in verse 6. For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. So it just tells you that although, although there is some, some, I would say, some background to why he's saying what he's saying, he didn't know what to say. So he said the thing that came to his mind. And he had probably some rationale to say it. So, so here he is, terrified, opening his mouth. What, what Peter is calling for is for booths or tents for each of them to dwell in. It appears that he wanted this moment to, to last, yes, but, but it is also rooted in this understanding that, that, that God uh, um, and his Messiah was coming to, to dwell. He was coming to tabernacle. And I think he's connecting with that, but he really doesn't understand what's going on. What Peter fails to understand is that God will dwell with us. He is tabernacled in a different way. He is already in this context tabernacled in the person of Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. I mean, this is Christmas now, right? He identifies with us. He feels the hunger, the thirst, and, and the struggles that we go through. But he didn't come to stay. Jesus came to go, but to go by virtue of the cross. And yes, he may want to hang out with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, but Jesus has other plans. Now, what we certainly see here is that Jesus is unveiled for them in his majesty and glory, that, that he is truly associated with these Old Testament prophets, and he is, at least we can say, on par with them where he's interacting with them. But look at Jesus now in his relationship to the Father. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So we have the cloud and we have the voice. Let's just think about the cloud for a little bit here. This cloud overshadowed, this cloud enveloped them. This is a rare word in the Bible. But it's used in Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, to talk about uh, the cloud that, was, that filled the tabernacle with the glory of God. It is used to describe the cloud that fills Solomon's temple. But it is also used to describe what happened to Mary when the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Right, talking about her conception. So ultimately, it is a cloud that symbolizes the divine presence. And so, so the divine presence now, represented by this cloud, now speaks. There's a voice that comes, and we understand it to be the voice of the Father. And it takes us back to Jesus' baptism. 
And if you remember in chapter 1, verse 11, this is what we read. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Now the same voice adds the words, listen to him. So here is my son entered into the world, right? He is, he is confirmed. He's, an, he's anointed. He's, he's uh, ordained, so to speak, at his baptism. And then he goes off into ministry. And now at this point in time, the voice repeats, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Who's he speaking to? Not Moses and Elijah, but to the disciples that are there. What they need to do is that they need to listen. Now, the father had given this testimony. And he's saying, listen to what my son is saying. This voice from heaven sets Jesus apart from Moses and Elijah. Now, just think about this. If, if Moses and Elijah are representing the, the law and the prophets, which I think they are, and the voice comes now, and all three of them are there, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and the voice says, listen, listen to him. He's telling the disciples, listen to what Jesus is saying about what Moses and Elijah and what they represent are saying about the Messiah. You see that? He's saying, listen uniquely to Jesus. Not in a sense of, you have nothing to say. But Jesus then is the one who is explaining the impact of the Old Testament and, and who this Messiah truly is. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says at the beginning of his book. Long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That doesn't mean we set aside the prophets. What it means is now the son speaks. And so that when the son speaks, he often will refer back to the Old Testament and he'll clarify this is what the Old Testament actually means. In fact, hear this, you cannot understand the gospel without the Old Testament. You can't say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian. Well, then you're, you're walking down the wrong path. Because the New Testament cannot be understood without what? The Old Testament. I mean, the, the, the apostles and Jesus, they're always referring back to the Old Testament to prove their point, to give clarification. And so when you study the Old Testament, you must study the Old Testament with what? A view to the cross. So you, you have both. You don't have one without the other. But the emphasis here is that the Son now is giving understanding to Old Testament texts or Old Testament teaching. So what is it the disciples need to listen to? In particular, it is the revelation that Jesus gave them just a little while ago that they need to listen to. And it's, it's, that, it's that passion statement. Verse 31 of chapter 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The Messiah has spoken and the disciples must listen the Messiah must suffer, and so ultimately will the disciples. Following Christ, friends, means following Christ in suffering. And understanding who Christ is and what he has come to do leads and shapes our understanding of what it means to be a disciple. And friends, like the disciples, we need to open our eyes to see the glory of the Lord and the significant power of his kingdom, especially when we're living in an age of darkness um, that seems to be so intimidating, so opposed to what we find the scriptures are saying. In fact, our, our culture ridicules and mocks and has contempt for and is arrogant about um, their view of Christianity being you know, a bunch of illogical buffoons or simpletons. And sometimes it leaves us cowering. Sometimes it leaves us silent. But we need to see once again in a fresh way the glory of the Lord and the significant power of his kingdom. You need to see the kingdom for what it is. It has come in Jesus. It has continued since Jesus came um, 
and, and ascended into heaven. And it will find its presence in the future, uh, in the future with a fuller measure when he returns. And so be careful that you fail to see the kingdom and its power and begin to think that the gates of hell are prevailing. Scripture says they won't. But you can begin to feel that they are. And what we need to see is Jesus in his majestic glory. He is apart from all that he has created. What he has created, he has control over. What he says he is going to do, he will do without a shadow of a doubt. And so we need to be reminded. We need that reflection in our hearts. But also when we open our eyes to the kingdom, we see that the followers of Christ will suffer. That is the cost of discipleship. But friends, isn't it our natural tendency to, to want the benefits of the kingdom, but none of the costs? <laughs> Or to put it differently, we want all the blessings of Christ without the cross, without the suffering. And like Peter, we find ourselves publicly confessing Christ, but in many ways we are rebuking him because we're saying things like, why are you doing this to me? In other words, you're wrong. This shouldn't be happening. Or, or maybe a little differently, what have I done to deserve this? Or... Why are you playing games with my life or with my family or with those whom I love? Those are all words. They're different forms, but those are words of rebuke. And we often rebuke him with our words, actions, and choices. In essence, we tell him that he's going about it all the wrong way. So the text here is a call for us to open our eyes and to see what the, with the disciples, who Jesus really is. He is divine. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the word of God. It's a call to look. Now, we want to see what I'm calling a call to listen. Now, this voice came and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, just as suddenly as Moses and Elijah appeared to the disciples, I think they were there before that, but they appeared to the disciples. They were gone. Verse, uh, verse 8, and suddenly, Mark loves that word, suddenly and immediately, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So now they're standing on this mountain with Jesus alone. Moses and Elijah, they were pillars from the Old Testament, but they are not the hope of the Old Testament. All right? Their ministries pointed to the Messiah, and as such, Jesus stands alone, unique as the Son of God. Now the disciples encounter Jesus in his, his glory. This encounter is, is over. But the message of the voice from the cloud and what they experience is planted firmly in their hearts. The one who was radiant in his glory, who's Clothes shone with immense beauty. He is now back to the state that they understood him to be. In other words, this one who is the son of God, although even himself stepping back into glory through this transfiguration, does not depart, does not leave them alone. He's still committed to the task of the Godhead. And he comes now and he is going to journey with them down the mountain. And this continuing relationship with Jesus and the disciples goes on. He is still there to train them. He's still there to nurture them. But they understand there's something now far different about this one who we call Rabbi. And friends, it's worth noting this is like a, a side note. That life in Christ is not to be lived out of looking for the next mountaintop experience over and over and over again. Jesus strategically allowed this encounter to take place for a purpose with these three disciples. But he didn't do it like every month. 
And unfortunately, American Christianity, by and large, has, has brought in this, this idea that, that your, your life and your, your walk with God has to be you know, these, these mountaintop experience type things. And friends, that's just not reality. Unless your mountaintop experience is, is, is you sitting in your living room opening the word and, and reading it and communing with God. Life in Christ is, is work. It's, it's living out of the mundane. It's facing difficulties and trials and opportunities. It's, it's practical. It's forcing us to be trained along the way. But we find joy in the doing, in the learning, in the trial. So friends, let's just, let's just kind of you know, make sure that we're wrestling things back to where they need to be. We're not looking now to, to go up to a mountain. I know Yosemite is just around the corner, but you're not going to find God any more there than you are sitting in here or sitting in your living room. Now, the disciples have seen Jesus in his glorified state, and, and the form, or this, this voice uh, from heaven called on them to listen to Jesus. Now notice what Jesus said, and then let's notice what the disciples did. What Jesus said and what they did. Verse 9, what Jesus said. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This, this charge of, of keeping silent is something we've seen throughout the first eight chapters. In fact, um, this is the ninth time and this is the last time when Jesus will actually give this command. But there's something different about this. What happens here is this is a provisional command. Don't say anything until what? The Son of Man has risen from the dead. In other words, until the resurrection. And at that point of resurrection, we know, looking down the road, that a you know, light bulb goes on and they begin to comprehend and start to understand all these things that Jesus had been teaching them along the way. However, once, um, once, uh, once again, they fail to, to grasp the meaning of, of, of this resurrection. See, in Jewish, in Jewish theology of that day, did include the topic of the resurrection. In fact, there's a couple other times in the, in the Gospels where the, this idea of resurrection is brought up. Even Jesus is talking about it. There was debates between different religious leadership of that day about the resurrection. And there's no qualifying statements in the Gospels about, you know, by the way, they didn't really know what was going on here. It was, it was a topic. So what's going on here is that they didn't comprehend what it was that Jesus was saying about his suffering that requires a resurrection, okay? And so we're going back to this idea of his suffering. This is more about his suffering, and this is what Jesus is really trying to reinforce in them than it is in particular about the resurrection, although that's a big part of it because it is suffering that leads to his death, which leads then to the need for his resurrection. And notice what the disciples did. So they kept the matter to themselves, and then it says, questioning what, what this rising from the dead might mean. So they, didn't, they still didn't understand. They were listening. They were questioning what it all meant. And we really need to put all of this into perspective. Like, like I said, for the last eight chapters, we've seen Jesus traveling around the northern part of Israel primarily, a little bit into Gentile territory, and, and what is it that we find him doing? He's preaching the gospel. He's healing people of their diseases. He's casting out demons. He's confronting religious leadership. He's performing incredible miracles like feeding the 5,000 and feeding the 4,000 where his creative power is on display. And he's calming the storms. I mean, this, this, this is a lot of wow stuff, isn't it? And how are the people responding? These are the words that are used. They're, they're astonished. They're amazed. We see them running from village to village as the boat is going along the shore. They're just running en masse because they want to be there when Jesus arrives. And when he's there, they're just like this mass around him. They want to hear him. They want to listen to him. They want him to heal their, their friends and loved ones. And they're bringing people who are sick and lame and possessed because they've seen Jesus as a miracle worker. And the Pharisees, they are angered and they want to kill him because, first of all, he was a nuisance. 
Then he was an, a threat. Now he is the enemy because he is undoing. He's attacking them and what they're teaching. But then the multitude are in awe of him and want him to stay. He was a celebrity. He was a phenomenon. He is a, he's a miracle worker. So how could this one gaining so much notoriety and, and, and someone who is so popular end up suffering and dying and then rising again? It just doesn't make sense. And we try to put this in the mind of a disciple who doesn't know the rest of the story yet. How is this happening? We can't comprehend this. I mean, you can feel the struggle in verse 10, can't you? They kept this matter to themselves. I mean, they, they kept thinking about it. They're questioning what the resurrection meant. Now, I just think about what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark. You remember the old phone commercial where the guy walks around and says, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? I mean, there's a sense in which that's what Mark is doing along the way. This is what Jesus is doing with the disciples. I am the Son of God. Do you get it yet? I am the Son of God. Do you get it yet? I am the Son of God. Do you get it yet? But he knows that they're not going to get it because there is this veil yet still that will come down. And after the resurrection, they're going to comprehend everything that, that he has revealed to them. So what they failed to understand was that the crucifixion and the empty tomb were key to the divine mission. They failed to understand that the great price that Jesus had to pay by being the sacrifice once for all, they, they didn't understand that. They failed to understand that the, the resurrection defeated death and demonstrated God's power for all to see and experience themselves. Many years later, Peter, who's one of these, uh, writes in his second letter the following. This is 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just think about that statement. We, we, we were telling you the truth about all these encounters and experiences that we had with Jesus, right? We lived them out. We were eyewitnesses. I was there, right? But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. You get in the picture of what he's referring back to here? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's, just, he's referring back to this encounter and saying this was true. We were there. This is what the voice actually said. Friends, the question for us is this. Do we listen to what God is teaching us? Or do we have preconceived ideas of what God should be doing? I think all of us even come into our, our Christianity with a preconceived idea of what it is that God's plan might be for our life or what he should be doing. And the whole of our Christian walk, he's chipping away at that. Because we think, well, I think it would be best if you did this. That my family would grow up to love you and be healthy and live fulfilled lives. And they would be somewhat prosperous. And then in my old age, they would take care of me. Well, if that happens to be you, you are very blessed indeed. But that isn't always the case, is it? Life is full of struggles and changes and, and difficulties. And your plans are not necessarily... God's plans for you? Are we wanting God to fit into the mold of our theological understanding or are we willing to let God's Holy Spirit speak to us through his living and breathing word? Now that is not, not a knock against having a, a theological understanding at all. In fact, we all have a theological understanding. The question is, you know, how refined and how developed is that theological understanding? But you might believe one thing about God, but as you're reading scripture, like, Wait a second, this, is, this goes against what I understood God to be. So either my understanding's wrong or the scriptures are pointing to something that I need to learn. And so you've got to find some way to make sure that we allow the scriptures to speak. So we've got to be careful with preconceived ideas. And this is what the disciples were struggling with. They had this preconceived theological understanding of who the Messiah was going to be and what he had come to do. And Jesus comes and he's correcting it. 
And they're struggling with it. And in particular, the struggle for them is that he would suffer. So now we have this call to learn, this call to learn. And this is really an application because now they're coming down the mountain. Remember, their minds have been racing. They've been pondering what Jesus said about the resurrection. What does all this mean? Why why does he have to suffer? Why does he have to die? This doesn't make any sense. I thought the Messiah was going to come and he was going to rule and he was going to reign and Rome would be gone and we'd all be happy. So here's the question. And they ask him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? The question gives us a window again into their confusion. And also a window into Peter's rebuke at the news that Jesus would suffer and die. In their minds, Elijah's coming ushered in now all that needed to take place so that when the Messiah come, he could come and he could rule. And we go back again to that passage that I read there, Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Again, let me say, read it for you. One more time. Behold, I I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So in light of their traditional understanding, um, their, their question is a fair question because they're wrestling with Scripture. They're wrestling with their understanding of Elijah and what his coming means. And so Jesus now gives an answer. And I, I, I love the way Jesus has, has been nurturing these disciples along the way. Notice the answer. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. You know what he's saying? You're right. <laughs> you're, you're right about Elijah. So I mean, they're, they're not completely you know, off the mark. There's some things that they're, they're right about, but they don't comprehend the fullness of it. Elijah does come first to restore all things. Secondly, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So he says, yes, you're right. But secondly, you have the scriptures. The scriptures do testify about a suffering Messiah. And again, we read that this morning. Isaiah 53 lays out the Messiah in his suffering. And then he says, but I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, of course, who is Jesus referring to there? He's referring to John the Baptist. John John the Baptist is Elijah. He has already come. We found him in Mark chapter 1, right at the beginning. And verse 2 and 3, this is what it says. As it is written, Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That was John the Baptist. And Jesus' point here is that John came and he did what he was supposed to do, but look how he was treated. He ultimately was arrested. He was put in jail. We know there was some interaction between Herod and Herodias and all that kind of stuff. And eventually he was executed. So when Jesus says, but I tell you that Elijah has come and and they did to him whatever they please as it is written of him, he's simply saying, listen, this, this one who was a forerunner came, did his job, but he suffered. You see, there's this this thread of suffering that's going all through this transfiguration. Jesus is trying to help the disciples understand what they could only see in a fuzzy way. Now he's bringing clarity. He opens up a little bit of heaven to show them the glory and the majesty and his relationship with the Old Testament as also his relationship with the Father. And he's saying, listen, this is the way and this is the road of the Messiah to go and to suffer and ultimately rise again. So once again, we see the disciples are being push to see that reality. But friends, it's not just the Messiah who would suffer. By, by implication, and we know in later statements interacting with the disciples, that they would suffer. And by implication, we know that as followers of Christ, the reality is that we will suffer. And I know living here in the United States, we don't experience too much suffering. It's a really soft 
tender kind of suffering as opposed to maybe what people experience around the world. But there is a suffering that takes, takes place. There is, a, there is a mocking. There is a scorning that, that goes against us. You, you actually might find it in greater form depending on where your, uh, your, your life actually interacts. Now, these words must have been a great encouragement to the first readers of Mark's gospel. Remember, Mark is written to believers in Rome who were experiencing the oppression of Nero's, I'm going to say anger, his, his politics, where he was using Christians as playthings, whether it be in the arena, whether it be as torches at parties, the Christians were experiencing suffering. And to hear that suffering is a part of God's plan and that it was true of Christ, it was true of John the Baptist, it would be true of the disciples and be true of them. This would be comforting because they would understand that their suffering was not happening because there was something wrong with them. It's simply part of the package of what it means to follow Christ. What we have seen in this text gives beautiful meaning to what Paul, the writer of Hebrews, as well as John teach, all teach us about Jesus. And I wanna, I'm going to read three texts for us that I think, having gone through this passage, give a little bit more now understanding and, 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 and power as we read them. So just follow along if you would. The first one is Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Being found in human form... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Of course, this is talking about Christ. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Secondly, Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't you just love that, that picture, the joy that was set before him? It's just the same thing that Jesus is saying to his disciples here. There is a joy that comes through doing the divine will. And, and that divine will is a, is a road of suffering, but it is a joy to Jesus as described here in Hebrews. And then Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so as we, as we come back to this transfiguration passage, we see humiliation and honor. We see suffering and joy. We see that throughout these texts that talk about the suffering of the Messiah, but the blessing and the joy that comes as a result of all that. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's table, right? We, we don't jump up and down. Oh, it was great that Jesus hung on a cross and he suffered. Oh, we love suffering, don't we? I mean, yeah, I said, mutilate a body on a tree. That sounds like fun to me. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, as if we're, you know, we're some evil people that just love torture. No, what we celebrate is what it all means. What has been accomplished there. It is an, an offensive thing that Jesus hung on a cross and he died there. But it means something to us because through that suffering, sins were paid for. Wrath was satisfied. And friends, it's one thing to see. It's another thing to hear. But the question is for us, are we learning? Are we learning along the way as Scripture is being unfolded? Are we growing as a result of seeing and listening? Are we allowing that to chip away at our character? Allowing that to show us who Christ is? Allowing all of that to fashion our understanding of the beauty of the gospel that is the divine plan for mankind should affect our understanding and our application and our living. 
Now, just a few concluding thoughts um, that I think flow out of this. Number one, I think it's worth us asking, how does our present culture understand Jesus? The Bible tells us the following, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who are not followers of Christ do not understand Christ. They do not understand the gospel. It doesn't make sense to them. They have preconceived ideas as to what Christianity is all about. They have preconceived ideas as to why you are involved in this thing called a church and you go on Sunday and you sing songs to a guy who is now dead but is alive. They can't comprehend it because they don't have the illumination of the Holy Spirit working in their hearts that is showing them not just what they see and what they hear, but the significance of what they see and they hear. They can only open the Bible and see words and stories on a page, a piece of literature, but it's not until the Holy Spirit is breathed into them that the Word of God becomes alive. And friends, this, this shapes then how we interact with them. We shouldn't expect those who are unbelievers to think like believers. And we shouldn't necessarily think, you know, expect them to act and behave like believers because they're not. They don't have an awareness. They don't have an understanding. And so we must accept them in their condition, in their lostness, in their blindness, and treat them with care and with love, even though there may be some prickliness to it. And we might get frustrated, but the only frustration is that they are not born again. And we can't manipulate that. We must go to God in prayer and say, God, breathe new life into Kurt or Mark or Sally or Jennifer or whoever it is. Lord, remove the veil of blindness and breathe in your gospel to their hearts. That's what they need. And a healthy understanding, it just, it just helps us kind of navigate how we live in this world, in a pagan world, doesn't it? Secondly, how does much of the church understand Jesus? Much of contemporary church um, struggles to see Jesus for who he really is. And this is, this is often what we see, you know, the the bestsellers or just the kind of stuff that gets out there. You know, Jesus is a buddy. He's the, he's the pilot. You're the co-pilot, right? He's, he's your homeboy. He's a grandpa. He's a dispenser of gifts. He's a genie who will meet your prayer requests and all that kind of stuff. And friends, it's always a tendency for the church to get soft on Jesus and not give a full picture of understanding of what the gospel is is and, and, and the suffering that comes, the suffering that it was required, and the reason for that suffering being the sin of mankind and the condition of mankind. He is a sinful creature needing salvation. So too often, um, the contemporary church are like the disciples, convinced about their understanding of who Jesus is, but failing to take scriptures at face value. <laughs> We've already determined who he is. Don't now argue with me with scripture. I know that Jesus is loving, he's kind, he's merciful, but don't tell me about all the other stuff. Well, then you're choosing to ignore a fuller, more beautiful picture of who Jesus is. They fail to see their sinfulness for what it really is. They fail to see the magnitude of what Jesus, the God-man, has accomplished on the cross through suffering and death. Now, having looked at the world and much of the church, we need to bring it home a little bit, don't we? How do you understand Jesus and the cross? Do you see him as the one worthy of all glory and honor? Do you recognize him as the Lord and master of your life? And I don't just mean that by saying, oh yeah, he's Lord, like Peter would say, right? Get the answer right. To say that Jesus is Lord implies 
that I am submissive to his lordship. Do we see Christ that way? Do we see that when Christ says it, then I must listen and I must obey, not just because I have to obey, but because in obedience, the result of that is joy. And it's all part of why he came. Do you see why he came to suffer and die? So when when you think about Jesus hanging on the cross, do you imagine the weight of all of your sin on his shoulders being judged by the wrath of God in your place? And that's just you. I mean, do you see that picture? When When you're contemplating today the Lord's Supper, as you're waiting to actually take the elements, just contemplate the weight of your sin on the, on the shoulders of Jesus. And then you add to that everyone else who ultimately would be part of the body of Christ. See, often we can be guilty of being like the disciples and trying to interpret our lives without the context of the cross. Friends, there is no fellowship with Christ without the cross. There is no peace with God without the crucifixion. There is no hope of heaven without Jesus' death and resurrection. And when we are prone to look away from the cross, when we're we're given to self-absorption with our speech and our actions, when we forget that the path of glory comes with suffering and rejection, we need to look at Christ We need to listen to him, but we also need to learn what is true and apply it personally to the context of our lives that our hearts would be changed. I trust that our time this morning will have brought some things up in your lives that you need to contemplate. And so this morning in the spirit of 1 Corinthians 11, I want to encourage all of us just for a moment, maybe as our musicians get ready, that we would examine ourselves, that we would judge ourselves. And if we find our hearts are sinful, that we would even then judge the sinfulness of our hearts and the desire then to reconcile from that place of willful sin to regret and the desire for forgiveness and to restore things with God even before we come or even as a means by which we are taking the elements that God through that is actually working on our hearts. desire to to find battle and victory, we come, we take these elements, Lord, we remind ourselves of the beauty of what you have done and the beauty of what you've said. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. Help us to celebrate in a worthy way, we ask in your precious name.